0: My goal in life is to fail miserably. You never expect to hear those words, did you? <laughs> but wouldn't it be interesting to see how it would work out for somebody whose goal in life was to fail miserably? Cuz if they succeeded, wouldn't they have failed? Oh. I mean, if your goal is to fail, would you be considered a success if you did? But you know, Jesus said in the reading this morning, many who were first will be last, and the last first. And that's a pithy statement, but a lot of people haven't really thought about what this means. It's a pithy statement about how to measure success. If you've succeeded according to the world's standards, you may just be surprised to find in the end that you've failed by God's standards. So how do you know if you've succeeded? I mean, really succeeded. Well, you have to measure your success against the right standard. This means, of course, that you can't use the world's standard to measure your own success. You know, this world measures success in terms, most of the time, in terms of wealth or status or fame But the successful believer is the one who succeeds in being a follower of Jesus. So we shouldn't think of obedience as an event. We should think of obedience as a lifestyle. A lifestyle of many events and instances in which we've done what's right. Isn't it interesting that God gives us life one day at a time? It's of the Lord's mercies that were not consumed, Jeremiah says in Lamentations. Because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And the fact that you got up this morning and saw the sunrise, or, well, saw the fact that the sun had risen, perhaps, <laughs> depending on how early in the morning you get up, is a measure of God's grace to you. And so... We get one day at a time, 24 hours, and each day is an opportunity to determine whether we are pursuing success according to God's eyes or whether we need to change course. So God gives it to us graciously. Now if you're following Jesus, you're headed in the right direction. A life spent walking in Jesus' footsteps is a life well spent but it doesn't happen overnight. You know, I, I heard somebody quipped recently, Rome wasn't built in a day. It was a government project. <laughs> but it's true, Rome wasn't built in a day, nor is a life built in a day, nor is maturity attained overnight. Don't you wish you could, you know, like take a pill at night and you wake up and you're mature? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but <clears throat> as soon as they give you the medal for humility, they have to take it away if you wear it. So, <laughs> i tell you, you can't win <laughs> unless you're playing according to God's rules. Now, the Gospel of Mark is really interesting in that uh, it's divided into three main parts, actually two main parts after you get past the introduction. The introduction is a short 15 verses. I I actually quite think that Mark is probably uh, wondering how he could trim back his introduction even farther, but he couldn't. So it took him 15 verses to get through the introduction. But The rest of the book falls into two nice parts, chapters 1 through 8, and it kind of splits at chapter 8 into two halves. One about Jesus' ministry and the other about his death and everything else related to his death, so his death, his burial, his resurrection. So, <clears throat> chapters 1 through 8, chapters 8 through 16, the major uh, pieces of the Gospel of Mark. There are, some, uh, there are a couple of key verses in the Gospel of Mark you need to keep in mind as you study the Gospel of Mark. One of them is uh, Mark 8.34. If, every, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And the other is Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Now we're, we're focusing on this section, the ministry section of Jesus, uh, uh, the story of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Mark. And that section itself breaks into three sections. Now you don't have to write all this down, but 1 to 3, 3 to 6, and 6 to 8 are the three major pieces of the ministry section, the service section of the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> and the reason I'm pointing this out to you is not because I'm a seminary professor and they've taught us to do charts like this when I went to seminary, but because if we observe each one of these sections, we figure out that each one of these three pieces starts with a passage about Jesus and his disciples so it's about disciples and so this means that the way in which god the holy spirit led mark to construct his gospel was to show us how to be disciples of jesus how to follow jesus and so in our passage which is going to go from 116 to 128 there are two stories, if you will. The first one I call fishers of men, and the other I call a demonic net, and you'll see why in a moment. So in 116 to 20, we go from fishermen to fishers of men. Couldn't resist the pun here. Let's look at 116. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. So we find both the setting here, the Sea of Galilee, and the characters, Simon and Andrew. Now, they are the first of two pairs of brothers. There's Simon and Andrew here. And in a moment, we'll meet the sons of Zebedee, James and his little brother, John who was the author of the gospel of john <clears throat> and so the setting is the sea of galilee here and i'm sure that jesus knew what that buoy was for i don't know <laughs> i don't know they they told me that was one that jesus used when he walked on the water i don't know <laughs> But that, no, but that really is the Sea of Galilee, just in case you were wondering. that's not like Lake Livingston or someplace like that. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, I mean you've got, you got to make mileage out of your trip to Israel, don't you? <laughs> now, uh, I, I just wanted to take a little sidebar, though, over into the Gospel of John for a moment. Because I, I think what a lot of people do when they read these stories of the calling of the disciples is... Uh, they don't realize that there's a context to this and that Jesus already knew these guys. You know, if you just read the Gospels, you aren't familiar with the background of this, it makes it sound as though Jesus is kind of wandering around going, hey, you, follow me! And they just kind of go, you know, walk off, you know, kind of like Star Trek V. Did you ever see that guy, uh, the the rogue Vulcan in Star Trek V? Yeah, most people skip that one. Skip that one. It's not a good film. Anyway, all right, so John tells us a little bit about uh, these, these disciples. He says, the next day, John, meaning John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Jesus, who we met last time when we studied Mark together, he was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. We learn a little bit later in this passage in John 1, skipping a couple of verses. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. So these are the first two characters we meet, Simon and Andrew, but they knew John the Baptist. Jesus' cousin, and by extension, I think it's reasonable to think that they had also met Jesus and knew him, perhaps not in the way they would come to know him, but they knew him already. And so Jesus said to them, verse 17 of Mark 1, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. It's interesting that uh, the word "follow" is not in the in the, the Greek text that, uh, that Mark 1:17 translates here. The word "follow" is not there. "Be" is there, but "follow" is not. And um, really, it's an expression. It's an adverbial expression, "dote," which means something like, "Hey, come on here." Something like that. And then uh, what follows the word, hey, come here, is the word behind me. As in, go behind me, Satan. What Jesus says to Peter in chapter 8 of this same gospel. Now, I know this is going to ruin your mental picture of Jesus, but you really have to imagine this for a moment. Imagine Jesus, rather than having long hair, like he's always depicted, Imagine that it's cut in a burr and he's wearing one of those Smokey the Bear hats. Okay, maybe some khaki as well. What he really says is something like, fall in. (laughs) Isn't that great? (laughs) Fall in and I will make you become fishers of men. In other words, uh, follow me is just too weak to translate what's really going on here, and the heavy emphasis on Jesus' authority. Now, I think the reason why Mark leaves out the bit about Simon and Andrew and Peter and all these guys already knowing Jesus is he wants to emphasize the absolute authority Jesus has. He comes on the scene, and he's already taking names, you know, calling names, too, because he, he ends up calling Peter, Peter, instead of just Simon. So follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. There's something else here too. And that is the promise of transformation. Notice it doesn't say I will make you fishers of men. But I will make you become fishers of men. It's an awkward expression even in English. But what's emphasized here is that if they follow Jesus then a transformation process will begin. Jesus will transform them from what they are right now into what he wants them to be, which means that Jesus has a purpose for each of us in following him. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. How's that? So I guess if we were to remain with the Marine Corps boot camp uh, metaphor, it was sir, yes, sir, and they dropped their nets and followed him. They left their business and they followed him. See, Mark chapter 10 tells us all these things that people left. You know, Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. And that's true. Jesus assures them, though, that they will get more than what they've left. In other words, when you follow Jesus, He replaces what you've lost. Even though from the world's standards, it looks like you have, you've failed. You aren't succeeding. <laughs> leave a successful business? What are you talking about? That's crazy. Now sometimes God calls people to leave a successful business, to go into ministry. I get them after they've been to uh, Texas A&M and done all their study in engineering and then they've been out in the workforce and then they come to me to study Greek and I say well you should have listened to God's will earlier in your life and studied Greek when you went to the University of Texas and that really helps them (laughs) grow spiritually uh, because well and then I explain to them you need the wilderness you know Uh, well going on a little further he says he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were also in the boat mending the nets. Here they are engaged in their family business with their father Zebedee. Immediately he called them. You see that Mark, here he goes with his favorite expression again, immediately, 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 immediately. He called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Now, I suppose we could speculate as to whether Simon and Andrew gave up less than James and John if they left a business versus leaving a family. But I I don't think that Mark is inviting that comparison. I think what he's telling us is that these disciples, like the other disciples, and like us as readers of the Gospel of Mark, we're all called, because of our obedience to Jesus, because of His great authority, to make sacrifices. And sometimes that might mean leaving an occupation. Other times it might mean something else. I can't even list enough things that would be sacrifices. And I wouldn't get to everybody's particular case. I couldn't. Unless we went to about noon or past. But anyway, we won't. But uh, the point is every disciple of Jesus makes some sacrifice. It might not be a change of occupation, but it might be a change in the way you do your occupation. It might involve uh, a a way of handling the way you live your life differently. But either way, both pairs of brothers here, both of them involved, both pairs involved in the fishing industry, uh, left to follow Jesus. Now, in this case, what Jesus is calling them to is intensive training. The three and a half year period of Jesus' life in which He was training the disciples and revealing who He was. And of course, that culminates in His death. But He leaves the disciples with training and then ultimately a power source the Holy Spirit, to uh, fulfill the purpose for which He has transformed them from fishermen to fishers of men. But that brings us to the second story here. And I call it a demonic net. Uh, And we're not talking about the internet here either. (laughs) Demonic Net is uh, chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. The second story actually begins with a hinge between the calling of the disciples and the activity of their teacher. They went into Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is right there on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, so they didn't have to go far. It's not as though they traveled somewhere else and went to a different town. But notice it says in verse 21, they, meaning Jesus, and the four men he had just called to be his disciples, to join his uh, theological seminary. What would you call it? Uh, maybe a mobile theological seminary, small faculty. And uh, here is Capernaum, and I'm sure the sign wasn't there. Um, (laughs) It says the town of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is often called Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels, and that, of course, is because he grew up in Nazareth. But Matthew 4.13 tells us that Jesus moved from Nazareth about 20 miles away to Capernaum. Nazareth is kind of in an out-of-the-way place. And Capernaum is on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's right on one of the major highway routes uh, of the ancient world, at any rate. And so this was the perfect home base for His ministry as He began. Now, uh, a little further on in our passage, uh, we won't be covering verse 29 this morning, but one twenty-nine tells us that Simon and Andrew had a home in Capernaum, which probably means that when, once Jesus moved to Capernaum and began doing his work there, <coughs> that uh, they had met him and they knew who he was. So that when he came on the scene on the, at the sea, ...of Galilee and told them, follow me. He had already been talking to them. So it wasn't some magical influence that... Uh, ...a net, if you will, that J- Jesus cast on them and dragged them off. It's, uh, they, they followed him willingly. Unlike the poor man that we're going to see soon in our passage. And immediately... There it is again. And then... And then... On the Sabbath... He entered the synagogue. You can visit a synagogue in Capernaum today. It's a beautiful white limestone construction. But that was not the synagogue in which this uh, story happens. If you look closely at this picture, you'll see the white limestone structure on top of a dark basalt sort of structure. That basalt structure is the foundation of the synagogue from Jesus' day. So you you can't really say you've stood in the synagogue where Jesus has stood, but anyway, I stood in there and pretended to be teaching in the uh, pictures of me, but uh, well, I'm not permitted to show those pictures. <laughs> so this white limestone structure dates to about the 4th century B.C. And the, the, the synagogue where this story takes place dates to about the 1st century uh, A.D. And he began to teach. Well, that's interesting. Because... A lot of people tend to think that when they think about uh, Jesus that uh, Jesus went around doing miracles all the time and that was his primary function in life was to do miracles, to heal people, to cast out demons, to do all kinds of spectacular things, to draw attention to himself and if you have that impression you're wrong, sorry. You're just wrong about who Jesus is. Because the first thing Jesus does is go into the synagogue and teach. Now, before this, of course, we saw him preaching uh, the kingdom of God, continuing on with John the Baptist's ministry, uh, a ministry in which he was preaching repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. So the first time you hear Jesus speak, In the Gospel of Mark, he's preaching. The next time you see Jesus doing something public, it's teaching. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And actually, Jesus as teacher is even more pronounced in the Gospel of Mark than it is in the other Gospels. The verb uh, translated teach here is the verb didasko, and it means to teach. In the Greek, it really means to teach. (laughs) And that verb occurs 17 times in the Gospel of Mark, and 15 of those times it's applied to Jesus. Once to the disciples, and once to the Pharisees. He's called teacher 12 times in the Gospel of Mark. And only Jesus is called teacher in the Gospel of Mark. Now, you know, what's funny is we tend to get religious when we start reading the Bible. And what I mean by that is words take on meanings that they don't ordinarily have in ordinary speech when we read the Bible. So we think about disciples. And we read the word disciple and we go, disciple, yeah, disciple, you know, guy who walks this far off the, off the, uh, off the pavement, you know, as a halo and, you know. And if we've read a little bit more of the Bible, we learn the disciples, yeah, those are those knuckleheads who are following Jesus around and uh, always putting their foot in their mouth, like Peter, for instance. But either way, we're still reading this kind of religiously, aren't we? And we go, disciples. Well, the word disciple only means student. In the Greek, it means student. And so, you know, we miss things that people in the first century just kind of take for granted. You know, he goes, his disciples. Oh, yeah, his students. He's a teacher. Isn't that great? You didn't even have to know Greek to find this out. So it's really no secret that the essence of discipleship really is learning from Jesus because Jesus is a teacher. You devote yourself to a person and his teaching and you are his disciple. And this sets the tone for the rest of the gospel. The title of the sermon this morning is Obedience. It's a simple title. if you learn from Jesus... Obedience is a matter of learning from Him and doing what He says. And we obey Him because He has authority. They were amazed at His teaching, says verse 22, for He was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. A typical... Uh procedure in Jesus' day as a teacher is to, when you teach, to appeal to earlier authorities for whatever position you're taking. Now, this makes it sound as though it's, it's like the modern day where you have to appeal to, to earlier authorities for what you're teaching. And that is at least in part true. I like to think that having to appeal to earlier folks also means that you've done your homework but in Jesus' day, the authority of the interpretation doesn't rest with the, with the person teaching. It rests with the authority of rabbi so-and-so, and rabbi so-and-so, and rabbi so-and-so. So there's, you know, the, the, the person doing the teaching really has no interpretive freedom as he is uh, expounding. Not so with Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene and teaches without appeal to rabbinic authority. Uh, to say rabbi is a little bit anachronistic, I admit it, because the rabbinic Judaism as we know it does not develop until after the destruction of the temple. But if you'll allow me, because the term rabbi does appear in the New Testament to, to, uh, to couch it this way. The other thing that's really interesting about this is that typically what would happen is that disciples, or students, would choose the teacher. And the more students who chose a teacher, the larger his following would be, and thus the greater his prestige, his celebrity, and uh, influence would be. And probably bigger the head, too. It doesn't work that way with Jesus, does it? Jesus is the one who goes and chooses the men he wants to train. So he is demonstrating his authority in choosing his disciples. So the scribes and Pharisees are trying to attract disciples. They're trying to build up their celebrity. And Jesus doesn't seek celebrity, but what we find especially after the exorcism that's about to be performed here, is the crowds keep growing and growing and growing. Uh, so even the next miracle, there's not enough room in the house for all people standing there, so much so they have to tear part of the roof off to get this poor guy who's paralyzed in to get healed. It's crazy. And Jesus didn't have any advertising budget either. He's not, he's not trying to attract students But he attracts a crowd anyway. Now, not everyone who follows Jesus is a disciple in in the sense that these first four disciples are. They aren't part of this inner circle that Jesus is entrusting with his words and his works and the story of his life. And many people who just happen to be part of the crowd don't understand who Jesus is. Now, though Jesus' distractors claim authority, he's the only one who can really demonstrate it. And so, uh, Mark establishes the ministry of the disciples right here in our passage. Uh, if you go to Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, what happens? See, this is the next, the next panel. In this section of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, Jesus sends them out to teach and to cast out demons. See what he's doing? He's multiplying his his ministry. Now, Mark doesn't explore the mechanics of exorcism, and I think that's on purpose, because in Jesus' day, there's a, there's a procedure for exorcism, and it involves... With some of them walking in a circle or drawing circles or uh, doing these kind of magic incantations or using secret passwords and so on. You even find in the book of Acts, you remember in the book of Acts, the sons of Sceva who say, who try to cast out the demons, they say, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. And the demons say, Well, Paul, I know, Jesus, I know, but who are you? <laughs> uh, so, you know, Mark doesn't explore how exorcism is done because I think, as well, he's also emphasizing the fact that Jesus just speaks the word. And so you might think that these two stories, this call of these disciples and an exorcism, are unrelated. But in fact, they're very intricately tied together because the emphasis of both stories is is the authority of Jesus. The obedience of the disciples, willingly, and the obedience of the demon, unwillingly, to Jesus' authority. Just then, verse 23, gives us the setting of the miracle. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Uh, the Greek text of Mark one twenty-three says there was a man in an unclean spirit. And I think this is more indicative of the fact that this man is not, doesn't just have an unclean spirit, but that he is under the control of an unclean spirit. So this is why I call this part of this, this story a demonic net. This man is caught in the net of this demon's control. Now, you've probably been wondering since I brought it up, what being fishers of men is. You know, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. I think one of the things you can point to is this contrast in the life of this poor man who is demon possessed that being fishers of men is a rescue operation. That Jesus is, send, is sending his people to grab people out of the clutches of Satan's domination. There was a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, everyone else in this story has some level of understanding of who Jesus is. The disciples follow Jesus because they have, at least in part, a promise of transformation. They know that, that Jesus has a purpose for them. They don't really know what it is yet. They probably don't even know what fishers of men means yet. But there is this understanding that they have. The crowds have a certain level of understanding of who Jesus is. We're going to see it later. And it's basically zilch. They basically don't understand who Jesus is. They've seen what he does. They've seen how he teaches, but they don't really know who he is. Now we as the readers of the Gospel of Mark have been tracking along in this story And we've learned who Jesus is because in 1.7, John the Baptist says, One who is stronger than me is coming. In Mark 1.11, at the baptism itself, the voice from heaven says, You are my Son, the Beloved, and you I am well pleased. The voice from heaven comes again in chapter 8 at the transfiguration and says the same thing. You are my Son, the Beloved. This is my son. Listen to him. And then at the crucifixion, the centurion looking up at Jesus' death says, Surely this man was the Son of God. Small wonder then that the beginning of the gospel says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark's point. And yet, we have to learn this inductively. Jesus appears on the scene. We know he's God because we've gotten this inside information from Mark. And what's really interesting about this whole situation is, in this story, up until this point, the demon is the only one who knows who Jesus is. (laughs) Demons always surprise you in the Gospels. Um, Uh, just pay attention to what they say and they'll always surprise you. And it always surprises us too what Jesus does in his reply. We'll see that in a moment. But I want to show you from Mark chapter 3 what the implication of what Jesus is doing is. Mark chapter 3, Jesus says, No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then will plunder his house. Now, what's the parable here? The parable is, the strong man is Satan. No one can enter the strong man's house. That is, Jesus has come to enemy territory. The strong man is Satan. What he's saying is that in his exorcisms, his casting out of of Satan's minions, he's saying that I'm binding the strong man so that I can plunder his property. Who are the property of the strong man? It's people like this demoniac This man who is caught in this net, who is now about to be freed. So Jesus binds the strong man and then plunders his property. You see how much authority is in this? He's using a really violent military kind of metaphor. This is this raid where he comes on this strong man in his own house, ties the guy up and takes off his stuff. Isn't that great? Here's Jesus, meek and mild. And this reveals that Jesus is victorious in his assault on Satan's house. He reclaims and redeems people who Satan had once possessed. See, his possessions. Isn't that funny that even in English we can say that word, possess? But Jesus rebuked him. Now, why does he say, shut up? Why does he say, be quiet and come out of him? I mean, after all, the demon has said something true about him. You're the Son of God. You're the Holy One of God. It's the same reason why uh, later in the Gospel, when Peter says, you are the Messiah, you know what Jesus' answer is? Well, okay, I'm the Son of Man, but you really don't understand what Messiah means, so don't tell anyone about this title quite yet, because... It's not the right time for people to start using this term Messiah because it's only in Jesus' life and death that you can truly understand what Jesus as Messiah really means. And this is what surprises everyone in his world. Messiah Messiah can't die. What are you talking about? Even Peter has a problem with that. But Jesus rebuked him. He subdued the demon. This is the same verb that's used of the stilling of the storm in chapter 4. You know, when Jesus says, on the Sea of Galilee, the storm is raging. He says, peace be still. And suddenly, peace be still. It's, it's quiet. Jesus rebuked him. Now, the demon attacks one last time. It's, uh, this is what I call passive-aggressive demonic force here. (laughs) That is, you know, the demon realizes he's lost, but he he chokes the guy one last time before leaving. But he says, throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit crying out with a loud voice. There it is again, passive-aggressive. Ah! You know, it's kind of like when someone says, don't say anything, and you go, ah! Or they say, don't say anything, and you say, what do you mean, don't say anything? (laughs) Okay. I'm not at all passive-aggressive, you know, but <laughs> now my brother, now he, <laughs> I would say, "Don't touch my food," and he would reach out. And say, so "I'm about to get up and go to the bathroom. Don't touch my food." And he would reach for it. So, you know, my mom, my mom said, "Just don't tell him not to touch your food. Maybe he'll leave it alone." <laughs> mom, you're a genius. Oh. Well. Anyway, so the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. So, uh, Jesus' victory is assured here. Now, verses 27 and 28 show you the particular and the broad or general reaction to Jesus. They were all amazed, and they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And I wish I could say it all, like run it all together, because... What, what seems to be happening is there are these three kind of strands going on in these conversations. So some people are going, what's this? You know, No clue at all. What just happened? A new teaching with authority, some people in the crowd are saying. And then other people are, are saying, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So no one has a clear picture of who Jesus is. And yet, you and I as readers of the Gospel of Mark... We know about Jesus authority cuz here he is saying fall in. You know, get out of him. You know, he's he's showing his authority. He's the only one who can show his authority. And so what people should be doing is saying, "Hey, wow. New teaching with authority throws out demons. Wow. Those must be related." But no, they don't get it. And and don't start, you know, like, "Well, if I had been there, I would have figured it out." Because all of us, you know, <laughs> this, is why, this is why God gives us a, a life one day at a time. Because we, we, we don't get it the first time most of the time. We have to learn it. So the crowd doesn't make the right connection. And then it says, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Jesus' celebrity increases, but people's understanding of who he is doesn't. We uh, we need the resurrection as the final piece of Jesus' story. So, if you walked along the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, how would you be sure you were going in the right direction? in a straight line you could uh, you could measure your steps against the shoreline but that changes the edge of the water is uneven you could try to put your feet in the footprints of the person ahead of you but ultimately you'd fail cuz peter has such big feet from always sticking it in his mouth you would you would miss You know, the only sure way to know that you're walking in a straight direction, in a straight line, is to keep your eyes on Jesus as you follow Him. Obedience is something you succeed at one step at a time. It's learned. It's not a switch you can throw and suddenly, hey, I'm obedient. And so... It means trusting Jesus Christ to bring about the transformation. And transformation implies a process, doesn't it? Jesus has to move you one step at a time. Discipleship, then, is learning the way to go from Jesus. Listening to his teaching. Imitating his obedience to God the Father. And it's by divine sovereignty that trust and obey was our hymn this morning because if you don't trust God as, so as to obey Him, then you won't attain that potential, that purpose for which He's transforming you. You miss out on the opportunity for God to do something with you. And so you have to measure your success, not in the world standards of success, money, power, prestige, popularity, beauty, you name it. You have to measure your success as a disciple of Jesus Christ in terms of your obedience to God because if you succeed in obedience to God you will succeed truly even if you lose everything.